welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and I'm extremely excited today about um, the topic of our conversation. Um, if you listen to, to any music, maybe not classical, maybe modern, contemporary, whatever, rock, pop, whatever it is, you might have had that experience before where you discover a new artist. You listen to something and you introduce it to your friends and you identify with it somehow as being your music, your discovery, and it's somehow special that way. I kind of had this experience with like the piano sonatas of Scriabin. Those works are not unknown in any sense of the word, but because I myself found them and went to listen to them and appreciate them, I have a certain connection with them and I love those works. Imagine, then, the kind of connection that you would have if you were handed the manuscripts to piano works that had never yet been performed. This is the situation that Dr. Caitlin Boschka found herself in when she went to Europe over the summer, and she found the works kind of at the end of this long journey of researching Czech composers. She found Miloslav Istvan. It's unlikely you've ever heard of him. I had not, but it became kind of her life's work, at least at least currently, uh, to come to learn about these pieces that had never been performed, never been recorded, not even published. And so her journey of discovery and exploration and enjoyment of these pieces is what we're talking about today. I've had a chance to hear her perform them and they're phenomenal works for piano. And so I'm very excited uh, to share with you her experience and her discussion, a really wonderful exploration of this composer, Miloslav Istvan and his works. So let's get started. So we have now Dr. Caitlin going to try to say it now. It's Boschka, right? Boschka, yes. So your name in Czech then should have the little tiddly bit over the yes. top of the S. Is that what that is? Yes, the hot Czech. And then I yes. accent over the A to lengthen the syllable a little bit. I see. Okay. And so recently, Dr. Boschka, right? Yes. Just since May. It's quite exciting. Congratulations on that then. Thank you. And uh, we're, we're here chatting or well, we're here chatting about um kind of it's the topic of your doctoral thesis correct yes and something that has sort of taken over a large part of my artistic life the last few years and i imagine for the next years to come too it's quite exciting and this is the thing you and i actually got in touch because of kind of a, a mutual i guess a a friend an acquaintance mm -hmm. um clipper erickson from a previous episode mm -hmm. And, and he mentioned uh, you, and I think the recital was just coming up at the time yes. and said, hey, there's this person I know who's doing this really cool thing. Would you like to talk to her? And I said, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, how, did, how did all of this with, is it Miloslav? Is it also Istvan? Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. how, how, how did that get started? Well, it's a very good question. I have to go back about um, 10 years or so to answer that. Um, so, growing up in a, in a family with Czech ancestry, I was always aware of the music, especially the folk music, the polkas, the different dances. And then about 10 years ago, when I was sort of finishing the early part of my studies and wanting to specialize in a master's program, 
I started to look into um, Czech music to see what was readily available in addition to what I already knew, sort of the mainstream composers, Smetana, Dvorak, Janáček, these people. Right. And um, I was so surprised because there was very little available. Everyone knows Martinu, I guess. This would be the next generation after Janáček. But there was really nothing else. And I was um, very intrigued because, as anyone knows who studies Janáček's life, he was very prolific, but he was also a prolific teacher. And so if you are a okay. teacher, there must be musicians and composers who are coming from that legacy. Um, and I wanted to find them. So then I delved into this long project um, going back into the 17th and the 18th centuries, going into the 20th centuries. And I found some wonderful composers, played a bunch of them, but I was stuck. There was sort of this black hole from musicians from 1948 to 1990 which is, of course, when this was part of the Soviet bloc. There was nothing being published, nothing um, being performed. And so I contacted the people that I knew, and I ended up thinking, okay, I just have to go here for an extended period and start looking through the libraries to see what hasn't been published. So I spent 10 weeks last summer, and I was um, very lucky to meet some amazing musicians, young musicians there like myself, early 30s, we're also starting on the same project. Um, so I met with a cellist and a composer named Stefan Filipek, who he founded the Istvan Quartet, which is devoted to playing the three string quartets that Istvan wrote. And he said, hey, I have something if you're interested. So he gave me the manuscripts for the three piano sonatas that Istvan wrote and told me that he had studied them, he had analyzed them, he had worked with Vladimir, which is Miloslav's son, but he had never heard them performed before. This, wow. was, this was amazing. This was July 11th of last year. I'll remember this date for a long time because I sort of got goosebumps as he handed this to me because I just had this feeling of faith that something exciting is about to happen. But unfortunately, I couldn't be around a piano for the next month. I had all these other concerts, so I carried them all over Western Europe in my little suitcase, <laughs> just itching to, to get at them. And when I finally came back to the States in September, I started to play through them, and they immediately just captured my imagination. Um, and so I decided to focus my monograph on writing about these three sonatas, um, and then now focusing on trying to get them published and working on um, a premiere recording of them. So that that's the long answer to your question, Michael. <laughs> that is incredible. And yeah. and what a rare opportunity as, it is. It is. as a performer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to have that. Yes, it really is. And then it's amazing when I'm playing. Uh, so the first recording or concert that I did of these I played also some Janáček pieces, which have been played and listened to many times. But it was amazing to me how I approached them differently now that I was also presenting something else that had never been heard for the first time. So it gave me right. a clean slate on how would I interpret these markings? How would I extrapolate artistic principles from what I knew of his life and the anecdotes about his artistic thought and creating something fresh and new. And to me, it felt like I was playing them for the first time. 
and that was very exciting as well. That's incredible. And so, so are these, you said like, these are manuscripts that someone, someone just handed you and had never heard them. Were these performances, world premiere performances then? Well, as far as I can tell, um, the first sonata that he wrote, published or completed in 1954, we can't say published because it wasn't published. This was, um, there was one performance of this in his lifetime. And then the other two, I have found no record of them being played anywhere in the Czech Republic or then the Socialist Republic, wow. Czechoslovakia. And as far as I know, um, the three of them, this was, of course, the North American premiere, for sure. Wow. And is that not, is that not maybe a little bit, I don't know, surprising or shocking that, you know, I can understand if it's a some kind of a giant cantata or a huge symphony or something, but it's solo piano. Well, it is a question that has I have asked myself a lot, especially when I first encountered them, because this, this, when you discover something or someone offers you something new, the question is, why hasn't it been heard before? And many times in music, it's because perhaps it was of a lesser quality, um, and so, sure. so this was, of course, my first concern, but encountering them and studying them, I completely believe in them as artistic works of the highest level. I think it has to do um, politically with so much that was going on. And then also, um, he died uh, January 26th of 1990. So right when um, the Czech Republic was opening up and there was more opportunity for performance. Right. So some of his other colleagues lived another five or ten years. So then they were able to organize um, recordings or concerts of works that had been written in the 60s and 70s that had been censored. So I think that is one part of it. And then also um, some of his students were not as proactive in continuing his legacy as other composers of that time period. So I think right. that has something to do with it. Um, it's a complicated question that I'm still discovering for myself, really. Well, well, let's let's talk for a little bit. What can you tell, kind of the 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 short, kind of compact program notes version of of his life? Kind of a, a, a quick, you know, who we know he studied with and interacted with, and what he did. Well, that's a that's a, of course a good question and a hard thing <laughs> to put in in a in a compact way. But I can definitely you know when you write several hundred pages about someone, it's difficult to do that. So I'm sure. Um, so currently, the only thing that exists there's one biography of him who was written by a close first personal friend. Her name is Yindustra Bartova, and this is in Czech. There's a very small English synopsis at the end. Um, and so this is also something I would like to work with his son, Vladimir, later in creating a type of English language biography for better access. Wow. Because there's very little um, that I know about his early life. What I know is when he starts um, student years at Yamu, which is the Janáček Academy of Performing Arts in Brno that was founded um, sort of in homage to Janáček, and it's just a few blocks from Janacek's house, which is quite lovely because you can walk by oh, wow. the little garden and the piano where, where he performed. So 
you, as you can tell, this sort of um, artistic influence was very consciously fostered in the early years of the Academy. It was founded in 1947, and then in 1948 was when Istvan started as an undergraduate student. He was there for four years, um, and he studied mainly with Yaroslav Kavapil, which was kind of the most uh, prolific of Janáček's students. However, he was in very ill health during this time, so the lessons were more of formality, and much of Istvan's work was self-taught. And he finished a wow. very large symphony with that, which um, I haven't heard. This is the problem in writing about his music. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, you know, I haven't heard it. Some of it I have uh, manuscripts or there was a one publication of so I can look at. Um, but very little has been recorded. So this is another thing that I wish to uh, bring attention to and try to uh, foster so we can hear the music that I'm writing about because I'm reading the score. And, and that's about it. So when he graduated, um, this was sort of one of the darker times in the political history of the country. So there was food shortage, money shortage. He was teaching part-time at the conservatory and trying to support a young family and write music. And this is where his first sonata was written, right when he graduated. And it's this beautifully poignant work where you can see him looking to find his voice after finishing four years of studying and being saturated by Janacek and folk music. He started working at this time with a radio orchestra of folk instruments where they traveled throughout Moravia and writing down, dictating folk music and putting it in the music. And I think this was a really important uh, foundation for what would occur later in his music. Sure. Um, by the time we reached the 60s, things started to get very exciting because he had written a lot of music, was really crystallizing what his style was, and then also, politically, things were beginning to open up a little bit. So uh, he encountered some what was happening in Western music. He discovered some of his first serial works, and this started to influence his style, oh, wow. as well as the first sort of underground electronic uh, composing studio. This was like 1966, 1967. Sure. A very exciting time where you could experiment and then get some things played. He um, was a founding member of this creative group A, which was another underground illegal group that would play music that the composers were writing. And it was a way to get the things heard as well as to talk about how can we create new music that's maybe outside of this social realism style that they weren't wanting to follow? So this was up in right. 1968. This is when we get the second sonata, which is very innovative, very exciting. And then, of course, in 1968, we have the Prague Spring and then the Soviet invasion. So now it becomes the 70s is the most difficult time. And he suffered a lot because he had been such a vocal composer in the 60s. So he was very censored, um, and a lot of this, his health suffered because of it. But out of it came some, I think, his most innovative and most interesting uh, music, including the third sonata, which is completely in this montage type of style that he developed and was an innovator in Brno at the time, where he's throwing together all of these disparate elements. And because of the juxtaposition, he thinks or he's attempting to create something completely 
outside of the musical ordinary. And I think it's very successful. Um, and then the 80s, he's still writing and starting to really experiment with percussion. There's a lot of percussion alone or percussion with piano, which I find very interesting. interesting. Yeah, because the Czech language is very rhythmic and Czech folk music is very rhythmic. So it would be natural, I think, um, to then get rid of completely the pitch element and just focus on what are Czech rhythms and how does it work in a musical narrative or a musical dialogue. And then unfortunately, when we get to the end of the 80s, um, his wife dies and it's a very uh, lonely time for him. Um, and then he dies just 10 weeks after the liberation in December. Oh, wow. Which I think is, to me, one of the huge tragedies because I can imagine it, he was such a pioneer for writing music and learning, looking for his own voice and in his students fostering that. And so dying just when the atmosphere was changing um, is, is, is a big tragedy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it, it was such an opportunity to be able to hear uh, your recital with the uh, the three sonatas, mm -hmm. and then some of the uh, Janacek pieces. It's it's incredible music, um, mm -hmm. and and I can kind of understand. I mean, I can understand being excited to go somewhere and buy the scores mm -hmm. and sit down and play it, but much less like being handed <laughs> the manuscripts and being you know th this whole this whole experience. Mm -hmm. How does how does this repertoire uh, differ from what your maybe what the other things that you play as as a performer as a pianist was is is there a a narrative a a language that that was difficult or that's familiar or that how did how do you approach this maybe differently from the other things that you're you're used to performing? That's that's a wonderful question. That's also a long answer, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do good. That. That, that's good. <laughs> um. Well, one the the first most obvious uh, answer that comes to mind is how we deal um, with the lineage that comes along with a piece that has been played for a long time. So I remember when I was very young and playing Chopin, I would look at the score and I would figure out how I wanted to play it, and then I would play it for a professor or a teacher, and they would say, "No, no, 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 we don't play it this way. We play it like this." Um, I would I remember being you know ten years old and very shocked by this because in my mind that wasn't well what you did when you learned a piece of music and then I gradually came along board because this is what everyone does so there's an entire baggage for better or for worse that comes along with these pieces the longer that they're played and the longer the expectation is so then it's much more difficult as an artist when you're finally trying to find your own way of communicating your thought about the piece when you have an idea of what the tempo should be and what the dynamic should be and what the articulation should be. Right. And so this was um, interesting. Probably the last five years, I've been pretty active in playing new compositions by composer friends of mine. And so I've become used to looking at a piece, having no idea what it would sound like, and then figuring out for yourself how you want to shape it. So that would be the biggest thing uh, for this piece. The other thing that's very, uh, I found very interesting in uh, approaching it for the first time was having uh, 
no knowledge of or no oral knowledge of much of the rest of his repertoire. So because I can't right. go and listen to what his symphonies sounded like and his songs and uh, some of the incidental music that he wrote for theater. So this was very difficult because I had no idea then um, what his cadence structure was like or what his tempi were like. And so if something says Allegro, I um, have no, there's no um, sound print for that in my mind as it is for him. So then you have to cast sure. that wider and look at what were his influences, um, what were his teachers like, what was his personality like, um, to try to help you then think of what he had in mind as a soundscape to create. Um, and everything that I have read and the people who've described him, that he was a very sensitive, very introspective type of person. And I felt that too in looking at the music, and so that was something that I was sort of coming from in my mind. And then looking at um, all of his work in the dramatic world. So I figured that he must then have some sort of action or picture or story going on. And so then I created my own to help have this vivid type of imagery that matched the musical gestures. That sure. So I found it was incredibly creative and I have, of course, no idea how successful it was as it opposed to what he thought. I have a wonderful opportunity uh, over Christmas of going back to Prague and playing these for his son. And that will be oh, wow. um, to get his feedback. I'm sure he can tell me much more um, than I know already. So I'm excited about adding that more personal dimension. And then talking to the people that I met who knew him, either as a friend or as a teacher or as a colleague, to help paint this sort of personal personal picture and and what is that pressure like sitting <laughs> sitting with the composer's son at the piano and and interpreting dad's <laughs> music well it's uh it's definitely a pressure especially because i believe so strongly in this music and i believe so strongly in Miroslav as an artist and just as a, a man himself and so I want to be the very best advocate for his music. And it's such a responsibility when you are doing the first recording or the first performance of something, because whether you like it or not, that's what's in people's mind for a very sure. long time. So it doesn't, it's not something that one does lightly. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mentioned, it was funny, actually, um, just a, a, maybe maybe about a month or so ago, mm -hmm. I, I had taken the opportunity to listen, just kind of out of the blue, to some of um, Martinon's mm -hmm. piano work, mm -hmm. um, like the puppet suites yeah. and some of those things. And the, the, the thing that, that came to mind first was like the mazurkas of Chopin. It's almost kind of like salon music. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not very heavy, but it's incredibly colorful and spirited and vibrant. Mm -hmm. I would completely... And then coming to music and, and like the, those, those puppet suites, Marionetta. Is it Marionette? Is that what they're called in French? Yes. Something like that. Uh, they're very short. Mm -hmm. They're very short. But then coming to these sonatas um, that, that I was able to, to watch you perform um, online, you know, obviously works that, that I've never heard, no one had ever heard. Mm -hmm. um, they're very, I don't want to say accessible from the standpoint 
that almost sounds negative from the standpoint like that they're kind of approachable or, or easy listening, but it, 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 the emotional impact is very much there at, at first go with these. They're very vibrant, very colorful works. Yes, and I, I think accessible is a very nice word. And unfortunately, you know, in some of the higher brow circles, that does become <laughs> negative because they think, oh, if it right. must be high work, it must be intellectual, it must be difficult. But I think this speaks to the type of artist that he was. And especially later in his life, in, in the 70s, he was very interested in popular music. He was very interested in popular rhythms because he wanted to engage the audience. And he wanted to be able to express something in a way that everyone could understand. Uh, he has an interesting paper that he wrote uh, where he was worried about this dichotomy between artistic music or classically composed music that was no longer connecting with the widespread audience. Um, and then the dichotomy between that and then the popular music that you hear on the street. So I think he very much had this in mind of how he could communicate in a way that was understood. Um, now, of course, the balance is that. How do you be widely accessible and still have a deeper message? And I think that is right. the genius of his music because I never feel he sacrifices content for the accessibility. And my theory is that a lot of this had to do with how much work that he did for the theater. So he was aware of how to have this very direct type of communication. Um, and, and I think that was seen in his abstract music as well. Very interesting. And, and so these, these three sonatas are kind of the backbone or the, the kind of the, the focus of, of his piano work, the biggest works of his yeah. that you've come across? They are the largest scale, yes. So as far as I have found, there are two other smaller uh, sets of pieces, which interestingly enough were actually published. Um, they were both done in the 50s. One is a, a called he called five impromptus, and these are interesting because I see some connections with Chopin, not so much in the musical language, huh. but in the way that he picked for each one sort of one musical or pianistic gesture, and then tried to exploit it to the largest degree. So one is all about ornamentation, and it's beautiful how imaginative he can be. And the other thing that should be said, which I didn't mention uh, earlier, is he was a very accomplished pianist. And one can tell this in the way he writes and uses the resonance of the piano and how it fits so nicely in the hand. So when he was a teenager, he struggled for a while deciding whether he wanted to be a concert pianist or wanted to be a composer. And I'm very thankful that he chose to be a composer because <laughs> then we have all these wonderful pieces. But because of his skill at the instrument, he was able to write so beautifully and so evocatively, but still, like you said, in this uh, accessible type of way. Um, the other small piece that he wrote um, for piano is called The Odyssey of a Child from Vaditsa, which is completely different. I would say less accessible in a way because it's uh, one of his early 12 tone works and accessible oh, wow. is not, it's not a beautiful melody. It's not something that you hum, but I think he was really harnessing this 
almost brutal nature that 12 tone music can have because he was talking about a very brutal event in, in Czech history where the town of Lidice had um, was used as an example by the Nazis. Um, they came in, they raised the town, they killed all the men, um, and then they took the women and children off and they completely destroyed it from the landscape. If you walk by now, there's, there's nothing to see. And there was only a few surviving children that came back after the war. And so he, he wrote this piece wow. to commemorate them. So uh, with that subject matter in mind, you can understand why it's, it's not so beautiful. But I still think it's very evocative. Well, and, and actually, I was I was going to ask about that. You mentioned because around the uh, the forties, the fifties, mm-hmm. kind of the end of the the um, second Viennese school, and then what was happening in Darmstadt. Mm-hmm. Did he get at all into serialism and twelve tone stuff? He at least experimented with it a little bit. It seems he experimented it with a little bit. There's in this piano work. There was um, he wrote a piece called the Dota Cameron, which obviously is referenced <laughs> twelve, and it's for twelve instruments, and that one is completely serial as well. It wasn't something, I think he's such a lyrical composer. Melody is so important to him that I think it was something that was a interesting experiment, but it didn't stick as far as when he went right. to the 70s. And and as as a composer, um, I read your your program notes for the the three sonatas for that um, that recital, and they were they were fantastic. From from the first sim- uh, the first sonata to the third, how how could you kind of e- explain his um, his trajectory? Because from like you mentioned, with the first sonata, um, it, it it does seem like an earlier work, and then this fascinating structure of the third sonata, at least from the standpoint of structure or complexity, there's there's a noticeable kind of evolution. I, absolutely. And I wished, to be honest, I wished that he would have written a fourth sonata because there's a gap in his writing for piano. Um, if you notice, so the dates for the two sonatas are both in the 50s, so 1954, 1959, and then nothing in the 60s, and then nothing until 1979. So that's a fairly large a big gap yes so i would i would have loved to had something sort of in the mid to late 60s to to bridge what was going on because again i know these works and i've looked at them but i haven't heard them so this is the question in my mind so absolutely the first sonata was right when he was graduating it's very much in a traditional sonata form you can see that there's a I don't want to say struggle because that would imply that he is struggling to put these two together. But you see maybe a little bit of a tension between what he was trained and the forms that he learned and then what his own musical aesthetic and his musical style or inflections were. And so the first sonata is in a traditional form, but you see these tiny tweaks at the end of a phrase or in the way when, um, in the recapitulation when it comes back, that he changes maybe the layering in slight ways that then gives an entirely different uh, inflection to the sonata form than what would be traditional. And we see this especially in the second movement, which I find the most uh, evocative rhythmically wise, and then the slow transformation chromatically into uh, tertiary harmonies that wouldn't be possible if you were being entirely traditional. 
So the first sonata is hinting at it, but we really have to wait until the second sonata before he fully uh, embraces his um, unique type of musical pacing. And there, in the first movement of the second sonata, there's only fragments of the melody, which I find so interesting for such a lyrical composer to force himself to only give the first half or the middle part or the second half. It's, to me, it's what makes that first movement so exciting. It's almost like uh, you're talking to someone and they have something so exciting to tell you or so poignant, but they can't quite finish the sentence because they have all of this going on in their mind. And that was the picture that I had for the first movement, which I felt of all of the sonatas that I've played to be one of the most interesting structurally um, in the way that he never, even at the end, does not present the entire phrase. So I'm still curious what the entire phrase is. <laughs> uh, interesting. I'm, I'm fantasizing that there are some sketchbooks someplace in his, in his library but I'm, I'm only hoping that that's the case. I have, I have no idea if that is true, but perhaps wow. one day we can find these, these sketches and then have an idea. Um, but then the problem is this is now 1959 and the entire decade of the 60s where he did most of his experimenting and found more freedom, there is no, um, there's, there's no work to represent how he would have done this at the keyboard or at a solo keyboard. There are some chamber works using the keyboard. Um, and then also in the early 70s when he's starting to feel more constricted and more um, sort of introspective, there's, there's nothing to show for that. So this is the biggest question in my mind and what I look forward in hearing the other non-piano works that he wrote to fill in that gap. Because then in 1979, when we get the third sonata, which has entirely discarded sonata form and entirely discarded right. even the pianistic writing of what he had done in the 50s, it's, he's using the piano in this wonderfully um, rhythmic way and wonderfully atmospheric way without a melody to speak of for the entire sort of five motives. So I find it... It's almost like he threw out everything that he had thought about writing for the piano in the 50s and now was an entirely different composer. Um, so you, in really many ways, you can't relate the third one with the first two. And, and, and that is the one that seems very much like the standout. It, it almost um, kind of, from, from hearing the piece and then from reading your, your program notes about it, it almost kind of seems like the kind of, uh, maybe I don't want to say break, but the kind of advancement or the kind of jump mm -hmm. that like Scriabin had when he started writing his single movement sonatas. The the form mm -hmm. and the expression and everything was was then different. Well, Christ, I mean, especially with Scriabin, it crystallized then in a compressed type of way. And I think for Istvan, not only did it crystallize, you know, transferring from a three movement work to a single movement work, but the way that he conceived the instrument seemed to completely change as well, which I think is natural for what, what I loved in reading about him and following his life is he seemed like he was always 
looking for new artistic ways to express himself, to challenge the process. And so that's apparent then if you look at what he did in the 50s and then what he did in the end of the 70s in his piano works. And and what is it, because I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not terribly, or well, I'm not really at all familiar with kind of the political, the the background and the all the details of mm-hmm. um, what was going on at the time. But m- most people are familiar, for example, with the sanctions against mm-hmm. um, Shostakovich yeah. in uh, a little bit earlier, I guess. No, really, I guess around the same time as as Ishvan here. Um, but people like Shostakovich and Prokofiev wrote music that was challenging. You know, Prokofiev's war sonatas are, are dissonant and violent works. Istvan's are not, what, or, or at least not in the same way. And so what is it about his music that was uh, illegal? <laughs> like that's, Do you know what I mean? Oh, no, I know exactly what you mean. And um, it's, it's a touchy subject. And I've... Uh, it's interesting that it's only been sort of recently that uh, Czech historians and musicologists are finding a vocabulary to talk about this because it is such recent history. And so it's it has been challenging for me as someone with Czech ancestry, but an American, um, you know, who I remember watching the Berlin Wall fall down, but only right. reverberations hit me, right? So... It's I've, and some people are loath to talk about exactly how you know, all of all of these things. Um, I think the biggest part, especially by the times we got to the seventies, because that's much later than, I mean Shostakovich had died by then, and probably. So, in the early fifties, um, when the. Uh, Communist Party was trying to uh, propound this idea of socialism and, and um, communal uh, way of living and, and all of this. They were really looking to the arts to find a way of bringing everyone together. And so they gave the composers very specific ways of writing and specific genres of writing. And they wanted this mass idea of like these big cantatas, um, very simple melodies so everyone could be on the same page, so to speak. Right. The idea of solo works were less accessible. The ideal uh, idea of using Czech folk music was also very subversive because that, again, was um, putting people in separate paths instead of bringing everyone together in this large right. way. And then, of course, anything that was Western, so using 12-tone using rock music, any of this was uh, very subversive. And so a lot of what Istvan did and other composers of the time, they used very um, small hints to try to get past the censors. So for example, Istvan, one of his works was using quotes from a John Steinbeck novel. And that, of course, would be... Oh, wow. So so then he ended up having to take away... um, some of those quotes in order to try to get it performed and it was still censored because of that. Or he was using some blues music with some English lyrics and again that was censored. Or um, another one was this very piano piece talking about the child of Lidica. That was a way of drawing comparisons between the oppressions of the Nazi party and then the current oppressions of the Communist Party. So um, 
I don't know if that answers your questions, but those were the things that was going on in his music. Oh, for sure. And that, and that makes sense. And it, it seems to come in, in some ways uh, similar to Shostakovich's the fourth symphony, the to a number of the symphonies, some of his operas and things, like you said, where they kind of, it was, um, they expected the music to be a kind of a propaganda kind of uniting factor. And if it didn't have that agenda, it didn't, it didn't fit. Exactly. And so um, in Istvan's student years, for example, all of the music students were required to be part of these certain ensembles and to write certain pieces for them. And so he has those pieces, which I'm not, I have not seen any record of them still existing. So I don't know if he destroyed them or if they just simply didn't survive. But this, then you can see in the 50s where he decidedly makes a break from those things, focuses on very traditional um, types of forms and then adding the folk music elements, which in my opinion was his way of adding these dissonant dissident ideas. But again, this is sure. very, with the small information that I have currently, it's really just extrapolating what my opinions are. And I look forward to uh, diving deeper when I go back, especially this Christmas, to find out more to support what my uh, hypothesis is now. Sure. It's a, it's a wow. It's a difficult thing because... It's so easy after the fact to, to say, oh, he did this because of this and he did this right. because of this. And so I'm uh, tentative to say those things too much at the current time. And, and were there any instances uh, at the time of, of composers or just artists in general who uh, defected? For example, Rachmaninoff and Stravinsky, you know, they were, they were in the West. Prokofiev had some career in the West, but then you have people like Shostakovich and Miaskovsky who stayed in Soviet Russia. Were there any, was there anyone kind of in his circle who, like, had that chance to get out? Not necessarily in his circle, but there were a number um, from the Prague area who did leave. There were sort of two uh, mass emigrations, so to speak, in 1948 when it first became socialist, and then in 1968, when right. this brief sort of thaw, um, and then the, the, the Soviet uh, occupation again in August. So not, not in his circle. There were many, of course, in other artistic circles, many writers left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very interesting to think about. Uh, what I have found very interesting, it's a very small country, and if you're talking about one city, I'm talking about Brno, the capital of Moravia. It's a very small, tightly knit community. So it's not like some of the Russian artists where there were so many and perhaps a, a different feeling of community. So they really stuck together in a very beautiful way, I think. Sure, that, that, that makes sense. I, and I can... I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never, I can't say I've ever been in a situation like that, but you know, I, I'm not, well, I'm not much for change and no matter how bad the current situation could be, there is, is there, I imagine there must be some fear of the unknown of, of leaving and running away and and not knowing what that's going to be like. I mean, it's home, right? Of course. And especially if you are so committed artistically to 
and as a teacher, you have your colleagues, you have your students, you must feel, I would imagine, you must feel very responsible for these things. And not knowing what's going to happen when you leave, not knowing what's going to happen to your family when you leave, or if perhaps the people around you will have repercussions from it. It's, it's a complicated type of question. But then it comes down to the fact of, are you allowed to express yourself? Are you allowed to support your family? Are you allowed to right. And if you look at Václav Havel, who was the famous playwright and then later the first president, you know, he was imprisoned, what was it, four times, I believe. And wow. if you read the letters from being in prison to his wife, it's quite a price to pay to have that always over your head. I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And would would you use because because if people think of the kind of na nationalistic composers, the, the the name that a lot of people think of is Dvorak. Uh, but but there's there are other composers who have who have kind of that that relationship with preserving or finding or using folk tunes. There was Balakirev in in the middle nineteenth century when they went off, you know, into to write down the folk tunes. There was of of course Bartok. Um, would you consider Istvan to be kind of along the same lines? Absolutely. Um, and he's doing a different type of nationalist type of writing because uh, it's an interesting thing if you look at Dvorak and Smetana because they were writing in a time when there was not a Czech nation. It was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for the last right. hundred of years. Yeah. And the national language was, was German. So it was quite interesting. Uh, this hit home to me last summer when I went to the Smetna Museum and to his house, and they have his um, grammar books where as an adult he was studying the Czech language because he was learning how to speak it properly. So, wow. And so really if you look at the very pure type of Czech music, whatever that even means, that's another complicated question, <laughs> right. uh, because we have such a difference between Bohemian music and Moravian music. So this is one reason why Janacek has captured me so much and why I've chosen to sort of stay in the Moravian side of music because it is uh, very evocative and a little, it grew up a little bit more isolated than Bohemia did. So Prague was a more cosmopolitan city. For a while, the Habsburgs had a uh, court there. So there was a lot more influence from uh, German music. So their folk music, for example, is more regular, it has very strong major and minor elements, which would go more with Western European uh, sure. phrasing. And then Moravian music was very influenced by Slavic chant. So their rhythms are more regular, more improvisatory, more modal, very exotic sounding in comparison. Uh, and they're very proud of this type of feeling. Sure. Yeah. So I would say that Ishvan definitely cultivated that national idea of being a Moravian in his music. Well, that is it for the first part of our conversation. And I am so excited for all of this project um, to be done. I'm sure I'm not as excited as, as Dr. Boschka is, but I'm, I'm very excited um, because this is music that is unquestionably individual and inspired and just really incredible. And what's surprising is that it hasn't been 
heard or is just now beginning to be heard. So I'm very excited for um, all of this to kind of come through and then you guys get a chance to hear the music. We have a second part of this conversation that will be posted um, soon. I want to get back to later parts of some conversations I had actually earlier in the year with some of my guests. Those still have to go up, so uh, stay tuned for that. Check out Dr. Caitlin Bushka on her website, and I will have all of her information and links in the description of this episode. Find me at www.fugforthought.de, also on Facebook and Twitter. Leave a comment and a rating in iTunes. That would be kind of fun to see. And contact me if you're interested in something. Fugforthought at mail.com. Not Gmail, at mail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.